Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, towards the end of last year, Mike, Mark, and I, kind of the team who put together the New England Franco Ruggio Tour, we were approached by Marie-José Duquet from the Quebec delegation in Boston. And we were asked if we might be able to come up with something we could do in recognition of the 100th birthday of Jack Kerouac, which would be this year, 2022. Uh, fortunately, Mark had the idea of an adventure lab that would take people to various Kerouac sites in Lowell, and then a new project was off the ground. And our guest this week, is a major reason why this project has been successful. Steve Eddington is a Jack Kerouac expert who gives guided tours of a couple of different places telling the Kerouac story. Simply put, I do not think this adventure lab happens without him. He's also a member of the Lowell Celebrates Kerouac Committee, which is, again, something we will touch upon. Steve, welcome to the French Committee Legacy Podcast. Well, thanks for having me here. Good to be with you. And it's good, been good meeting you over the last several months, too. Yeah. It's been cool. It's been fun, for sure. So, yeah, we've run into each other a couple of different events at this point. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So, first of all, I'd like to get you your story. So, where, where are you from? Okay, right now, I live in uh, Nashua, New Hampshire, which is about 10, 15 miles uh, directly north of uh, Lowell. Uh, I am retired from being the minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Nashville. It's a congregation I served for 24 years. And my other life, while I still live in Nashville, my other life while I was doing all that uh, kind of thing was becoming involved with the Lowell Celebrates Kerouac Committee, which puts on an annual Jack Kerouac Festival every uh, every October. We call it, we you, we go with October because of the line and on the road where he says everybody goes home in October. Oh, and, cool. so, and Lowell is his home. And then the sort of the tragic dimension of that is he also passed away in October. So everybody goes home uh, in October, and that's when people from uh, really all over the country and other parts of the world come to Lowell that first full weekend in October to be a part of the festival, uh, which, as you just mentioned, involves uh, about three or four tours of the various places that Jack writes about in his five Lowell-based uh, Lowell-based novels. I'm the president of the organization at this time, and we're already gearing up for our festival this October, which will be October 6th through 10th, which will also be the grand finale. Of the <laughs> Kerouac, will all be the grand finale of the Ooh. Kerouac uh, Centennial that's been going on ever since March. Very so that's, nice. that's enough of that. So. No, no, that's terrific. So the, what, how did you first get introduced to Kerouac? Way back when I was in theological seminary, which was in the late 1960s, oh, wow. uh, somebody, I wish I can't even remember who it was now, gave me a copy of the Dharma Bums and suggested I read it from the point of view of, of, of a writer who was trying to reconcile or at least try to somehow hold together uh, the Roman Catholicism in which he was raised and which he professed and the Buddhism to which he had become very um, attracted. So I kind of read it from that angle. And it just, uh, I was just very taken by the writing itself. I knew who Jack Kerouac was. I knew he'd written a novel called On the Road, but that was the first I had actually encountered him in any of his uh, works. So before going to seminary, my undergraduate, I was an English major. So if I read a writer whose writing really appealed to me, I would go back and read just about everything else uh, he or she ever wrote. Went on a huge Steinbeck kick when I was in college. So I did. I just started working. I began working my way through uh, Kerouac's works and just found they really appealed to me in a number of ways. And also became aware of some of the struggles in his life uh, that were behind some of his writings. And then in 1988, I came to, I moved here to Nashua 
to take on the ministry at the Unitarian Universalist Church. I found out there was this organization down in Lowell called Lowell Celebrates Kerouac. I started showing up at some of their meetings in the early 1990s and been, been at it ever since. So sure. that's, that's it in a nutshell. And I've written a couple of books. I wrote a book about Kerouac's Franco-American ancestry, how it plays out in his novels. And then I've written a couple other books about some of the religious and spiritual currents I see in the Beat Generation writers, including but not limited to, uh, to Kerouac. That is very, very, very cool. Now, it does, it does make me think, though, because, I mean, Ben, I mean, how many years since, since Kerouac died at this point? Uh, it's been a little, he died in 1969, so it's 53 years, I guess. It'll be 53 years this October. 53 years, and yet still somebody that tons and tons of people talk about all the time. He's, his work is clearly connected. I know, Mike, mm-hmm. I'm joking. I just saw a, a play up in, uh, up in Vermont in which... There was a there's a one person performance and she talked quite a bit about the work of Kerouac and I know Mike who produces this podcast he's on, he's on the record as when he was you know dating who is now his wife he would read Kerouac to her all the time like so <laughs> I find just super fascinating what is it about him that just kind of just keeps going part of well it's not unusual in Kerouac's case for his true uh, abilities and genius and all that to be recognized. After his death, you know, I think about how Vincent Van Gogh only sold one or two paintings during his lifetime, sure. and you can't buy a Van Gogh. Uh, yeah, and you sure. can't buy a Van Gogh painting now. Similar kind of a dynamic or similar kind of a process with Kerouac. When he died, unfortunately, his alcoholism overtook him when he was only 47 uh, years old. Uh, a number of his works were out of print. You know, you can just go down the list. He, sure. he was just kind of, kind of considered almost like a flash in the pan who rode on the road and then wasn't heard of too much more. That was not true, but that was kind of the line when he uh, when he passed away. I think in, in the ensuing years, particularly starting in the late 1980s, there's been kind of a Kerouac renaissance where a lot of his works have been rediscovered, reappreciated. And I would say, thanks in large measure to the, uh, the Kerouac estate, uh, Almost as much of his writings that he were published during his lifetime have now been published after he's passed away. A lot of posthumous uh, writings as well. To try to get at your question, I think particularly with On the Road, it's a coming of age novel. Each generation kind of wants their road experience. Each generation sure. wants to be out there, and I think that's why um, he has that kind of uh, he has that kind of appeal. I mean, we get people at our Kerouac festivals who like me or. Um, who are old hippies still looking for a 60s hit. <laughs> and sure. then you've got kids. I mean, you know, kids in their late teens, early 20s who are also coming. You've got that whole range of people. And like I say, like part of the reason is at some point people like that, uh, like to have that road experience. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go out and do the exact kinds of crazy things that sure. Sal and Dean do in right. On the Road. But you want that voyage of discovery. Uh, you want to know what's out there, what else there is to your life. And I think that's where Kerry Wack plugs in. And that's a generation to generation kind of need. And I think that's a good deal of it. Yeah. No, that's that's really true. That's awesome. Because you're right. It is that appeal of just heading out on an adventure and kind of whatever right. happens, happens. We'll, we'll figure it out as we go type approach yeah no that's very cool now before we get to talking specifically about Lowell which we'll obviously get to uh something that I was not aware of before meeting you for the first time was Kerouac's connection with Nashua New Hampshire can you kind of explain that a little bit yeah right yeah all right to back up just a little bit five of although Kerouac is best of course known for on the road and Dharma bums subterraneans those those books desolation angels he wrote five novels that are based on his growing up days in uh 
in Lowell, and that very strongly reflect his French Canadian Franco American uh, culture and uh, and and heritage. One of the lines we use in uh, around uh, around Lowell, we 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 love what he did with on the road, but part of the part of the Lowell line on Kerouac is if all you know about Kerouac is what you've read in On the Road, then you don't really know Jack. Sure. <laughs> and the sure. idea being that you have to understand and understand his, his roots. And part of those roots were his ties to, uh, to Nashua, uh, New Hampshire, where I've lived now for over 30 years. Uh, in the late, in 18, in, in 1890, uh, his grandfather, Jean-Baptiste Kerouac, emigrated from a little town up in Quebec called St. Hubert, uh, and came down to here to Nashua with his uh, with his wife and family. Their youngest child was a one year old infant called Leo Kerouac, who became oh. Jack's uh, father. On the, his mother's side, the little, his mother was a uh, Gabrielle Levesque. Uh, she too was born in Quebec, an old town called Saint Pacom. Uh, her parents had already located here to Nashua. That when she became pregnant, she went back up to have her pregnancy with her family in St. Pacome, which is where Gabrielle Lebec was born, and she came uh, also here. So Leo and Gabrielle, Jack's parents, both grew up in Nashua. They met here in Nashua. They got married here in, uh, uh, in Nashua. By that time, Leo had got a job running a French-language newspaper in Lowell, and so they moved to, uh, to Lowell because of his work. But both of them, I mean, their extended families, both the Kerouacs and the Levesques, the extended family stayed in stayed in Nashua, and that's why in in, in Kerouac's uh, Lowell-based novels you will find references to Nashua. Or we went up to Nashua to see my to see my aunts or uncles or cousins or my aunts, uncles, and cousins came down from Nashua uh, for for a visit. In his first published novel, The Town and the City, he re, he calls Nashua well, he calls Lowell Galloway. Okay. It's the most fictionalized version of his of his books in his first published book, Town and the City. He calls Lowell Galloway, and he calls Nashua Lakoshawa, and <laughs> okay. uh, and three of his Lowell based no three of his five Lowell based novels end in Nashua, with the uh, one describing the death and burial of his uh, older brother uh, Gerard, which happened in 1926, and then the first and the last novels he published in his lifetime, Town in the City and Vanity Dulos, also end here in Nashua, also at the St. Louis Gonzaga Cemetery, where he describes the uh, the burial of his uh, father. In a Kerouac family plot, which is about a five-minute drive from where I'm sitting. <laughs> As a matter of fact, yeah. There you yeah. go. All right. Yeah. That's, that's the Nashville connection. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Do you know what brought these either side of the family down to begin with? Probably the same kinds of things that brought a lot of the uh, immigrants there uh, from Quebec in the latter part of the 19th century. The farms were farms were failing. Uh, they were having a pretty sure desperate time of it. Uh, representatives from the New England mill towns from Manchester, Nashua, Lowell, uh, Lawrence would go up to these farms. And, and sure. they, in a way, they kind of sold them a bill of goods. They talk about how much greater life would be if you just came down here and worked in the and worked in the mills, which probably sounded pretty good. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Time. So that was part of it. The, the, the Kerouacs, they were just part of that sort of general southern, um, my, both the Kerouacs and the Levesques were part of that general southern migration uh, for what they were hoping, in a way, it finally it eventually kind of turned out that way. But what they were hoping would be, be a better life for themselves uh, in America. Now, very few of, uh, I think, only one of, of uh, Leo's sisters actually ended up working in the mills. His oh, really? grandmother, Jean Baptiste, was a um, uh, was a carpenter. But I think just general, they felt, especially sort of given the economic climate in uh, in in Quebec, especially in the rural areas of um, 
of Quebec in the latter part of the uh, in the latter part of the 19th century. They just felt that it was a it would be a better deal <laughs> if they came this way. So that that was pretty much it. Makes sense for sure. No, I understand you. So you give tours of Nashville. Yeah, well, I give a, I give one. We like I said during our Kerouac festivals, we usually give about three or four uh, uh, tours. One of them is of uh, one of the ones is the one that I lead of the uh, of the sites in Nashua because in his Lowell based novels, particularly Visions of Gerard and Doctor Sachs, there's a lot of references to a lot of references to Nashua. A lot of things where his um, people, where his aunts, uncles, and cousins lived, and as is the case in Lowell. A lot of the places he described, a lot of the houses are still standing there. You can still see the house that his grandfather built in Nashville. It's got vinyl siding on it now, which it didn't have. (laughs) (laughs) But it's the same same house. You can see the boarding house where his mother, Gabrielle Lebec, lived when she moved out because kind of a difficult family situation. And then both of his parents, Gabrielle and Leo, uh, as well as his brother, Gerard, are all buried here in Nashville, like I said, at the St. Louis Cemetery, not far from here, as are the ashes of his daughter, uh, Jan, are also uh, interred there. A cup, Two of his uncles are also um, buried there. And I covered all that in my tours. When we have the tour, we go to the different places in Nashville. We go to the site of what was once, of what was called the Rouleau and Kerouac grocery store run by his okay. uncle Joseph, who shows up as Uncle Mike in in, in Visions of Gerard and, uh, uh, and and Dr. Sachs. So it makes for a pretty thorough tour. And I think I really, in addition to enjoying doing that, I really do that to kind of give people a wider, hopefully a wider perspective, a wider understanding of just who Kerouac was and how deeply embedded he really was in his uh, in his French Canadian Franco-American ancestry. How how important that. Uh, how important that was to him. Well, that's the that's the theme of all of the tours we do, but sure. I especially try to emphasize that with the um, uh, with my Nashua tours. That's really really cool. I said definitely was new to me. Obviously, as I mentioned before, most people think of Jack Kerouac. I certainly include myself in this. I think Lowell, Massachusetts. I kind of identify him as being, you know, a Lowell guy. So, when did you start giving the tours? Of Lowell, Mass. How did you decide you're going to do that? How did you determine what was going to be on these kind of some of these Well, scripts? probably. Let's see. The way I had was when I first, when I became started becoming involved with the Lowell Silhouettes Kerouac Committee, which was somewhere around the mid uh, 1990s. After I kind of got myself, I felt pretty well established with my congregation here that I could start branching out into some of my more personal uh, interests. I, I started doing that, and then I went back and reread the Lowell novels, and I kept noticing all these references to uh, uh, to Nashua. So I thought, well, maybe there's a tour in here somewhere. So I started just digging through old city records, birth and death records from some of the churches here. And eventually it came out, came out with a book called Kerouac's Nashua Connection. And so I guess I started doing the tours. Let's see, the book came out in 1995, probably somewhere shortly before the year 2000. I started doing the uh, I started doing the Nashua tours. I've been been doing them ever, <laughs> been doing them ever since. So, yeah. And on the yeah. Lowell side? On the Lowell side, the same. Well, the Lowell side, I um, I've more recently become involved doing the uh, the Lowell tours. Uh, the person that we really looked to for doing our Lowell tours was a really wonderful gentleman who passed away just about a year or so ago. His name was Roger Brunel. He knew about everything there was to know about Kerouac's connections to Lowell. He led the tours. Um, like I said, he passed away about a year ago. So now either myself or some other members on the committee, particularly a fellow named Bill Walsh, we do the tours. We do generally um, three tours. We do a bus tour, which covers just, it's a bus tour 
covers the general sites of, uh, of Lowell, the house where he was born, the cemetery where he was uh, buried, some of the other places that he writes about. Then we have one, the one I'll be doing next month <laughs> or in a few weeks from yeah. here is called Mystic Jack. It covers the neighborhood that he writes about in, uh, in Visions of Gerard. Uh, we have one called Ghosts of the Pawtucketville Night, which is covers most of the, a lot of the sites. That, and we always do it at night. Oh, covers, that's cool. A of, covers a lot of the sites that he writes about in uh, uh, in, in Dr. Sachs. And then we just do a downtown walking tour for people who have maybe been on some of those other tours and want to walk around downtown. That does the high school uh, the library where he played hooky from school, so we could go read what he wanted during his senior year at uh, at Lowell High School. Awesome. So we do the we do a bus tour oh, and we do a bus tour and three walking tours during in addition to the national tour. So that's a very big piece of the whole <laughs> festival that we do we do in October. Keeping busy for sure. Now I yeah. definitely want to talk specifically about this tour that focuses on visions of Girard. So okay, because we talked, I was fortunate to talk about that area with you when we did the kind of like our scouting for what we would put on the adventure lab. And for those who might not be familiar, what, what is visions of Girard? Okay. Visions of Girard is, um, is the book that Jack wrote about uh, the loss of his older brother, Gerard Kerouac in 1926 to rheumatic fever. But when Jack himself was only, uh, was only four years old. And so, and so he grew up, there's always a question when he writes Visions of Gerard. He wrote Visions of Gerard when he was about 30 years old. He wrote it in January of 1956. He was born in 22, so you know, do the math there. But uh, he wrote that thinking back to the time. And there's always the question then of how much he is writing from memory. I mean, how much do you really remember from when you were four years old? Sure. There's a question there is how much he's writing from memory and how much he's writing from the family stories that were told that were told about him. And the thing is, and I think people I've talked with who uh, lost a sibling when they were young in their family, what happened with the Gerard was he kind of became, not surprisingly, he kind of became a, a saint or a little god in the family after he um, after he died. And so that's what Jack, he only had, he had, he had an older sister and an older brother, Gerard. As Jack was growing up, he would hear all these stories about how what a wonderful human being, almost like he become, Gerard became like the perfect child sure. in, in the Kerouac household because sure. he had died at such a young age. And the implication there being with Jack and you're, and you're not, you're, you'll never right. be the perfect human being <laughs> that right. your older brother Gerard was. And he was kind of haunted by that throughout his life. Part of the reason I think he wrote Visions of Gerard was to really kind of come to, uh, come to terms uh, with that. Uh, so the novel call, is called Visions of Gerard. He wrote it in 1956, thinking back to uh, the illness and the death of his brother. But in a larger sense, the novel of the five Lowell-based novels he wrote, that's the one that I think best captures his uh, Franco-American, French-Canadian ancestry and identity. And he's struggling with it, like a lot of us. We have kind of almost... I know love, hate is an overworked cliche, but I'll stick with it here yeah, anyway. No, of course. We all have kind of a, uh, you know approach avoidance love hate thing with our with our ancestry we want to affirm it on the one hand and kind of break away from it uh, on the uh, on the other so part of it is Kerouac struggling with his uh, uh, Franco-American French Canadian ancestry he also wrote the book at the time when he was at the height of his Buddhist phase so he's also sort of struggling between the tension in his life between his Catholicism and his Buddhism and he's writing all of that against the backdrop of the death of this um, older brother when he was a four-year-old kid and, and, and Gerard was nine. The whole novel when it takes place within two, with 
two very brief exceptions. The whole novel takes place within two blocks of the Centerville section of, um, of Lowell. And when you think about how so many of Kerouac's novels are spread clear across the United States and down into Mexico and right. over to Europe and everywhere else, this one novel, with two very brief exceptions, never leaves that two-block neighborhood right. around the St. Louis de France uh, church and school and the house where the Kerouacs were living when uh, when Gerard died. So that's why it's a walking tour. All you got to do is just walk <laughs> around the block. All you got to do is walk around the block, and you see about three or four of the of the places that he's um, describing in that uh, in that novel. So and yeah, and so it's important that as I, as I said before, that's one of the tours that we do in October. The way it came about for July was there's also a program in Lowell that the Lowell National Historical Park does called uh, just called Lowell Walks, and it's a highlight. It's just walking tours that highlight various aspects of Lowell's. Um, very rich uh, history. For sure. And, and uh, so this year, because of the Kerouac Centennial and because some of the connections we, Lowell Celebrates Kerouac, have with this Lowell Walks program, um, decided we would do one in, in the summertime. So another member of the committee, Bill Walsh, and I are going to be leading that tour on the 23rd of, uh, uh, of July. We'll be doing it again come October, but we're, 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 doing it, uh, we're doing it now for the Lowell Walks program as part of the... Uh, as part of their larger, as part of the larger range that they cover, as well as to wave yet another flag for the uh, for the Kerouac Centennial. No, that's awesome. That's very very cool. Now, obviously, you talk about everything happens within this one neighborhood. How much does that late neighborhood still look like what it would have looked like to him when he was four years old? It looks again, except for the vinyl siding and the satellite TV dish, the house looks pretty much the same as when the Kerouacs lived there. The school. Uh, the school that both uh, Gerard and Caroline um, attended, I don't think Jack was old enough to go in there. It still looks, it's no longer, they had to close the school, but the building is still there. It looks exactly as it did. Awesome. Right on the front, it still says, L'Ecole de Saint-France de France. I'm, I'm butchering it. But yeah, it, you're fine. Uh, yeah. uh, it has the same French title on the, sure. uh, on the school as it did when, when Gerard went there. The church, the St. Louis de France church, was also uh, the archdiocese had to close down as they were consolidating uh, uh, parishes, but the building is still there. It's the same building that the Kerouacs attended. It was where Jack was uh, baptized, and it was where Gerard's funeral was held. So all the buildings still look remarkably, remarkably the same, and which is which makes the tour all the more kind of exciting. Uh, to people who take it, yeah, this is the way. This is the way it looked when Jack was here. You know, when Jack and Gerard and his family were here. That's very, very cool. Now, see, this is interesting to me because I was actually baptized in like in in a in a church that is you know no longer a church, and mm -hmm. it's just to hear those kind of stories to, to me is kind of fun. So, did you know what what is that place now? I think it's still just. I don't believe that. I don't know. The building is still there. It's still owned by the. Uh, it's still owned by the uh, by the Boston uh, Archdiocese, oh, really? but I don't know. I don't know if they have any plans for. It. I mean, there. It's still there. The rectory, which also gets a good write up in uh, Visions of Gerard, uh, the buildings are all standing there. The school is still being uh, used through some arrangement with the Lowell School uh, District. The buildings, the rectory, and the church are still sitting there. They're still owned by the diocese, uh, but right now they're just in kind of, I guess you say, they're in kind of a holding pattern yeah. right now until until the diocese can either sell them or come up with some other some other use for them. 
No, it is interesting because the same place I was baptized is uh, Grace Metallius, another Franco-American oh, yeah. Franco author. Place, yeah. Exactly. So same, actually same church she was, and now it's like storage, no, storage for a theater or something now. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's kind of wild. But interesting. I mean, I think that the entire area, when we were going through, taking a look was super fascinating. But obviously this is a French-Canadian heritage podcast. That's mm -hmm. kind of what, what I talk about here. So if you could talk a little bit about what life would have looked like growing up in that area of Lowell when, when he was a child? I think at, at that time, the, um, excuse me, the various, uh, the various ethnic communities were still pretty much living in their enclaves at that time. You had their French, the main section, there were three French Canadian enclaves in Lowell. Okay. One is called little, one was called little Canada or like Petit Canada, which is no longer, I mean, the, the area is obviously still there, but the, it's gone. Sure. The other two places were, the places, sections of Lowell called Centerville and Pawtucketville. And the Kerouacs lived, they sort of alternated back. They never lived in Little Canada, but they alternated back and forth between those two. So you had those enclaves. You also had sort of an enclave where the uh, where the Greeks were living and where the Irish were living, which is called, sure. the, which is called the Acre. So you, you sort of had those communities that each kind of stayed. To, I, I don't think it would be, might not be correct to say they lived to themselves, but they each cultivated their own cultures. Now, sure. But like in Pawtucketville and Centerville, you still have today, you have the Pawtucketville Social Club. You have the Centerville Social Club, which is where they would, um, the residents of the, the French Canadians in that area would get together, you know, on Saturday nights, kind of relive their their Canadian, you know, sure. play the songs and eat the food that they heard up in, uh, in Canada. And I'm sure that went on in the various other ethnic uh, enclaves, too. To extend that a little bit, during when Jack got to the latter part of junior high school, though, his closest friend. Uh, he befriended, this was after he was, when he was going to high school, he befriended a guy named Sammy Sampas, who was from one of the Greek uh, enclaves. Sure. And together, he and Sammy and a few other of their friends uh, formed a group, they called themselves the Young Prometheans. And they would get together <laughs> and awesome. compare the writings and the poetry and discuss the great ideas of the day. And that was really reaching, a, Sammy became his closest friend. Sammy's older sister, jumping way ahead, actually ended up becoming Jack's third wife when he moved back to Lowell in the 1960s, late 1960s. And so, the, excuse me, that was one place where he kind of was, was he was kind of reaching across sure. those ethnic kinds of lines in ways that was a little unusual uh, for those days. You know, the French Canadians stay with the French Canadians, you know, the Greeks with the Greeks, the Irish with the Irish, the Poles with the Poles, et cetera. Absolutely. And, and Jack and some of his high school, school friends reached, a, a, kind of reached across, reached through some of those who find some common interest in some of the writings of the writers, the authors they were becoming attracted to and some of their own writings that they were, um, that they were uh, trying out as well. So I think that's pretty, um, that was pretty significant uh, for, um, uh, for that time. But yeah, just to say that it's like his father ran a print shop and some other jobs around Lowell. So his father had to be, had to be bilingual from, you know, all along in order to sure. run his business. His mother, French remained her, uh, original language. She only spoke English when she was in situations where she really needed to. Jack did not begin speaking when you think of all the amazing things that he had done with the English language. English was not his original language. He did right. not speak. He spoke French until he was six years old. That was the only language he knew until he was six and started um, and started going to uh, and, and started going to school. So yeah, there was a certain amount of, um, yeah, there's a certain amount of insularity <laughs> among right. there. But there was also a certain kind of security in that. If you're coming from uh, if you're coming from uh, from Quebec or from Italy, uh, Greece, wherever, you want to be with people who literally speak your language. Absolutely. And eat your kind of food. Yeah, no, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of no, that's really neat. I know because my 
I mean, similar stories here in Manchester, obviously by my grandfather used to tell my dad that he, when he was growing up on the West side of Manchester, he could go months without hearing a single word of English. And yeah. my, my, my great grandmother born lived her whole life, died in Manchester, never learned how to speak English because she never had to, because she could do everything she needed in, in the neighborhood, as you, as you suggested, because you do everything right in French. So no, I do think that's pretty fascinating that he lived in this kind of world. I'm curious because one thing we hear a lot from a lot of guests on the show is that over time, being French almost carried with it a stigma, mm-hmm. that it was something that people grew for what, whatever reason uh, to be almost embarrassed about to have mm-hmm. that background. Did Jack struggle with any of that at all? Because a lot of times French was associated with me with low class. If you were French, mm-hmm. you were low class. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he did. I wish I had. I don't have it. I don't have the quote in front of me now, but there was a thing he wrote in his journal about how he uh, did uh, struggle to become what he called un anglais. Yeah. Uh, even as he was with with his French Canadian, how sometimes he wanted to um, pass is not the word, but sometimes he wanted he wanted to be more than. Uh, sure. than that. And there was other times when he was uh, when he was um, uh, in, in embracing it. And so I think. Uh, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if you're familiar with On the Road, where he writes about how he was, uh, there's a place in there where he refers to himself as a white man disillusioned and sure. thought that other cultures offered more to him. I don't think he would, I don't think he was primarily making a racial reference there as he was trying to say, he was trying to get beyond the identity he had been handed gotcha. to discover himself in, in some other ways. And that goes way back to where we were talking about at the very beginning of this thing. That's why I think uh, On the Road, some of his other novels, they're really about a quest for self-discovery, which we all go through. We all go through at certain points. And I think that's a part of his his appeal. He was trying to discover who he was, just as we all just as we all do, particularly in an earlier, particularly in some of the earlier stages of our lives. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really neat. And and another thing, again, that you you mentioned earlier that I thought was fascinating, going through kind of the various sites um, related to Kerouac and Lowell was how many of them um, were religious sites. And you talk, can maybe talk more about the like the, the role faith played for him mm-hmm. in, in kind of his life. Yeah, well, one of the I, I, was, I was hoping to get to this at some point. Another one of the major stops uh, on our, our tours, uh, well, there's a couple. There's the grotto, place right. called the grotto, the, the Lord's Grotto, which is a replication of the grotto at uh, Lord's, has the 12 stations of the, uh, the 14 stations of the cross. And that was where Jack's mother went very often just to kind of find some spiritual solace after the loss of, uh, after the loss of Gerard. And so there's a very strong passage in, uh, in Dr. Sachs where Jack writes about being with his mother as they go through the the grotto to make the stations of the cross and sure. and seeing a funeral home from right behind uh the first station which ended up being the funeral home where jack was awake when he died many, right. many years later the other place that gets a big the other religious site and the one that some of us in lowell are really focused on right now was the saint jean baptiste church which is where uh, as jack got a little older he went to uh he went to saint joseph's um parochial school, and he became an altar boy at the St. Jean-Baptiste Church. The St. Jean-Baptiste Church was built right on the edge of the little Canada uh, section of Lowell. Uh, the person there, the, the priest for years, was a Father Morris Set. Everybody knew a Spike. Everybody called him Father Spike. <laughs> he, he got a big street name for him in, in Lowell now. He, he was the priest when Jack was an altar boy. They stayed in touch throughout uh, his life. Uh, Father Spike represented sort of one of Jack's ties to Lowell that he would keep coming back to to see him. And then Father Morissette also had uh, Jack Kerouac's uh, mass when he, uh, funeral mass when he died. Well, the church now has been sitting empty. 
it, it's been through a few other uses. Now sure. it's sitting empty. It's in the hands of a developer who has said that if there was enough interest and money and all that to turn that into a Jack Kerouac Performing Arts Center and Museum, uh, I'll hold off on doing anything with it. And so there are several of us in uh, Lowell now who have formed the Jack Kerouac Foundation. We're hoping to raise the money and do all the other things we have to do to make what was the St. Jean Baptiste Church, because that really was Kerouac's kind of spiritual home sure. uh, in, in Lowell. We want to make that into a Kerouac Center, and we're um, we're working at it, hoping we can raise the hoping we can raise the money to do that. So no, that's so, the, really yeah, so yeah, yeah, so yes, the the uh, if you go through when when you look at the St. Louis Church that he writes about with George Funeral, he writes about the the uh, the grotto and going there with his mother. Writes about the St. Jean. Uh, a Baptist church. Yeah, these religious, uh, the uh, place, uh, another, which I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but another church where he said he came back to Lowell when he was an adult and had this vision that the word beat, by that time he had coined the term beat generation, and he was sitting in a Catholic church in, in Lowell on one of his adult visits back to town, and he said he had this vision where he also saw that beat also meant beatitude, oh, kind geez. of a life of love and care and uh, a compassion, I think, in uh, Emulating, emulating the teachings of Jesus. I think he sure. saw in the person of Jesus, he saw a combination of beat and beatitude in that one in that one person. And he writes about how he has that uh, had that vision while sitting in a Catholic church in, uh, on one of his trips back to Lowell after he was an adult. So, so he was writing in, a, in 19, 1950, he was 28 years old, writing in one of his uh, journals. And very interesting line here from him. He says, as a child, trying to become un anglais, A-N-G-L-A-I-S, mm-hmm. as a child, trying to become un anglais in Lowell from the shame of being a Canuck. Yeah. I never realized before I had undergone the same feelings in a Jew, Greek, Negro, or Italian feels in America. So cleverly had I concealed them even from myself. Very telling. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Very telling words there on wanting to, as I say, to uh, talk about what he concealed from himself was his own ambivalent feelings about um, uh, about his ancestry, and then realizing he, he, that some other some of the other racial ethnic groups had gone through it, were struggling with the same kinds of things uh, that he was. And for him, so he, he was 28 years old when he wrote that, and he just and he put it out there. So anyway, whatever use you might have, whatever use you might no, have, that, no, that's that's hugely significant. I'm because that's again a lot of the topics that we talk about here is people growing up just with obviously not being able to articulate it quite as well, but having to grow up and kind of like with similar feelings. No, I think that's really interesting, for mm. sure. Um, I did want to ask. I think you'd be a unique person to hear this because to ask this too, I should say. Um, because we have some Franco-Americans who almost um, seem not thrilled with the fact mm-hmm. that the first Franco-American that anybody else thinks of is Jack Kerouac. The reason mm-hmm. being is he's somebody, you know, who drank a lot, who wasn't, right, yeah. who wasn't shy about talking about um, all the escapades he had with women in his life and, mm-hmm. and how they, they don't think necessarily he's the most terrific of role models of what people should think of when they think of a Franco-American. And I'm just curious kind of what your take on that would be. Uh, the thing about the role model, there, there's some truth to that. I have a, I have a son now he's in his thirties and uh, has his wife and our granddaughters and all that. Now, when he was growing up and I was, I thought, well, no, I, 
I don't think I'd want him living the same kind yeah. of life that uh, that sure. Kerouac did. If he wants to go out and have his journey of discovery and ride around the country with a friend, which he did, awesome. I wouldn't want him doing some of the wild, and crazy things that Jack and Neil did in uh, yeah. uh, in, in on the road. So I can I can identify with that uh, with that with that piece of it. I think the other thing though is to realize that um, the drinking and for reasons I've never completely understood and probably never will for a lot of people who are very creative and artistic it seems like the self-destructive urge and the creative urge almost run right side by side that's not the case with everyone but it certainly isn't Kerouac you think about F. Scott Fitzgerald who drank himself to death and he was 40 well that doesn't take anything away from the significance of the great Gatsby sure any more than Kerouac's very tragic, unfortunate drinking takes away from uh, the genius of his work. So that's basically what I say is read the um, read is not just read the words that he said and realize that sometimes those uh, some of that writing was coming from a very uh, a very broken life at times and there was nothing unique about uh, about Kerouac uh, in that. You think of uh, you know. Sylvia Plath, who took her life. Same thing with uh, Ernest. And you can go down the list of all the of the various really creative writers and artists who have couldn't quite keep their personal life in a in a in a in a stable and, and, and secure place. Yeah. And Kerouac is like he's just. I mean, he is one person on that list. The aforementioned uh, Gris Metellius, same thing. Everybody. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think that's just kind of real. That, that's the best I can offer. So you just have to realize that he was one of those people. Who's who was amazingly creative on the one hand, and kind of had this kind of fall on our self-destructive side um, uh, to him on the um, uh, on the other, and that's just kind of the that's one of the irony that's just one of the ironies that's one of the paradoxes of um, of, of his life. And yeah, he he did have some misogynist ways about him at times. Uh, no no question about that. On the other hand, he was very encouraging of some of the women writers. Joyce Johnson, uh, who wrote the minor characters about her. Uh, time with him talks about how he was encouraging her to uh, write her uh, first novel. Same thing with Diane De Prima. She would just recently passed away. She would tell you how uh, supportive uh, he was. So again, there's that contradiction again. Sure. Misogynist on the one hand, but also encouraging uh, some of the creativity that he saw in some of the young women writers of his days in ways that most males would not have done. So there's just you're just when you get into that thing, you're just dealing with a mass of contradictions. Sure. <laughs> that's what you, and that's and that's pretty much that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I like that. That definitely makes sense. So obviously a lot of discussion about Kerouac this year. The reason we got involved, the reason the obviously the Quebec delegation reached out to us was the 100th birthday. So can you just talk about and you mentioned how October is going to be the kind of the grand finale. So mm-hmm. what is happening in celebration this year for the this 100th birthday? Okay. Well, I see we are um, every year. Well, I said we'll, we'll, we'll be doing the tours. We've got uh, some really big uh, musical events. There'll be open mics. For people, you know, try out their own. Uh, their own uh, the person who come who's been coming back to us for year after year after year is um, is David uh, Amram, outstanding musician, composer. He's ninety two or ninety three years old at this point. Wow. He knew Jack back in the day. He and oh, wow. were uh, friends in New York when David. David's a jazz composer. And he would play at these, he would get Jack to come to jazz clubs and read his writings while David would play. Um, That's so crazy. David would play behind him. And he's been coming up to Lowell for years, even at his uh, his age. His energy is amazing. No, he's an outstanding composer. He wrote the musical score to the original movie versions of um, 
of the Manchurian candidate and Splendor in the Grass. I mean, he's pretty well, pretty well known, but he comes up to Lowell every year. We have we we, we wrap it up with a thing called the Amram Jam. It's kind of an open, open mic where people can come and read their poetry or some of their Kerouac passages and David will play behind them while they're reading. So you get the experience of reading your stuff, having the same guy that used to play for Kerouac oh, wow. uh, play play for uh, uh, play for you. So David will be back for that. Our featured speaker this year is very much emphasizes Kerouac's uh, French Canadian ancestry. His name is Jean-Christophe uh, Clotier. He's a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. He's probably the foremost expert on taking Kerouac's French writings and translating them into English that most accurately reflect what he was trying to um, what he was trying to say. Nice. And so, uh, J- his name is Jean Christophe. He likes to go by JC. So JC like will be coming up to give a, a talk on that. He wrote um, several years ago, about three or four years ago, a book came out called "The Unknown Kerouac." Well, a lot of his earlier, a lot of his French writings that the, sure. the estate made available for publication, and JC was the one who did all the translating. Uh, Very cool. So when you read it, you get the French. So that's the which, in addition to the tours and the open mics and the music and just the kind of general fun and games, we try to do at least one scholarly, <laughs> do at least one scholarly piece uh, there you go. each year at all. And 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 JC is the one who's doing that. I think above and beyond that, it's just the the thing I get the biggest um, kick out of or the biggest reward out of is just seeing particularly the people who come back from year to year. It's almost like a gathering of a tribe in a yeah, way. That's you, cool. come back sure. one, you come back once a year to get to, to be in Lowell, but the other people whose lives have also been really blessed and touched by uh, Kerouac, just kind of uh, reaffirm that. And you've got people who are coming for the first time and kind of getting a taste of what that's like. And then you've got people who just come back from year after year after year because they want to be with their fellow Kerouac uh, aficionados. And so that's the intangible, sure. that's the intangible piece of it is just seeing how Lowell draws these people uh, in from uh, from one year from one year to the next. This year, we will be uh, taking visits up to, uh, we'll, if we can't get, I don't know if we can get into the building or not, but we'll certainly be showing people what I mentioned earlier, sure. uh, the John Baptiste Church, where we hope will be a Kerouac Center in some uh, in some years in the uh, in the future. So yeah, we're looking at this started back in March and we're wrapping it up in October. It's been, quite, awesome. it's been quite a year. It no, has been quite a year. Yeah. Very, very, very cool. And one, one final thing I definitely got to make sure to mention is I hear people talk about the scroll. I'm doing mm-hmm. my air, my air quotes now. It be, and the way I hear some talking about it, you would think it was like a biblical manuscript, this mm-hmm. like sacred documents mm-hmm. that people would one they, they their life is not complete until they see the scroll. Oh, so uh, what 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 is the scroll? Where is the scroll? I think it's in Indianapolis right now. Well, the scroll is the it's the original manuscript of On the Road, and yeah, we had it for we had it when the uh, centennial uh, uh, kicked off. People probably knows people probably know the story of this. You know, Jack made four cross-country trips between 1947 and 1950, taking notes the whole time. Uh, that was that became the basis of On the Road. And so then in April of 1951, he was living in New York with his uh, let's see, that would have been his second wife. He was living in New York with his second wife thing and wrote the novel in uh, in three weeks on a continuous, not a continuous roll of paper, but he would type tape sheets of paper. And uh, and tape them together so he considered his typewriter. In a way, he was anticipating word processors by about 50, <laughs> 60, about fifty or sixty years. He didn't want to have to break his train of thought as he was uh, typing. You know, you, you type. He was a speed typist, 
And, you know, you get to the end of an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and you got to take it out and put the other one in. And, and for Kerouac, who wrote what he called spontaneous prose, that was that would break his train of thought. And sure. so he would take he put as long a sheet of paper as he thought he was good for that typing session together and then just go. That was that became the original manuscript of On the Road. Now, he had to go back and put it on real eight and a half by 11 sheets yeah, of paper of to the publisher to look at it. But that was the original version. And it was stayed mostly for years and years. It was with the, uh, it kind of resided in the office of his literary agent at the time, uh, Sterling Lord. In uh, 2001, in spring of 2001, more of a backstory here that I'm aware of I can get into, but the, um, uh, the, Kerouac, uh, the Kerouac estate needed to sell the, uh, not the estate, person who had inherited one of the one of the Sampas's families who had inherited mm-hmm. the on the road portion of Jack's uh, writings after his wife Stella Sampas died uh, he passed away Tony Sampas needed to sell the the scroll needed to be sold to sell some estate bills well that's neither here nor there thing is it went on sale at Christie's auction in May of 2001 uh, and it was purchased by a guy named James Ursay, who was the owner of the Indianapolis Colts uh, National Clothing uh, franchise. I did not realize he owned that. And he's a, well, Mr. Ursay is like he's a collector, of, a collector of pop cultural memorabilia. I think he has one of Jerry Garcia's guitar. You know, yeah. he's kind of an example of what you got all the money in the world and can spend it on whatever you want. <laughs> that's, what you he, that's what he spends on. No, so he paid $2.4 million at a Christie's auction to wow. buy the scroll. And to his credit, the reason he's kind of a hero in the, uh, in the Kerouac world right now is because instead of sort of putting it into a private collection that he could take out and impress his friends with when he had him over for dinner or something, he allowed for it to be displayed all over the place. It's been on display in various parts of the United States, various parts of uh, Europe. The person who's the curator of it is a gentleman uh, named Jim Canary, like the bird. Jim is on the, um, he works in the rare documents collection at Indiana University in Bloomington, which is just south of Indianapolis uh, a little ways. And um, so, Jim, you put in your request, you get the uh, the scroll, and special display cases have to be built for it. Sure. So we had it, and so it, Jim Canary will just will take it to wherever the arrangements have been made to have it uh, displayed, and uh, he'll roll it out in these cases. Now, the original, the scroll, the whole scroll is 120 feet long. Oh wow! There's only very few places where you can get 120 feet. There's very few venues where you yeah, can get 120 feet. So usually, and this was the case in Lowell, you show as much of it as you can arrange for it to be shown in whatever museum or space that you have. We had it at the Lowell National Historical Park uh, for the Boot Cotton Mill Museum, mostly to um, the mills, but we had a a section there where we could do that. So that's what the scroll is, 120-foot document that Kerouac wrote in the course of three weeks uh, in May and April of 1951 after he had completed the 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 travels that would make up uh, on the road and it's been put on display uh, uh almost ever since and you're right it does have almost kind of a kind of a sacred dimension right. to it <laughs> yeah. the people who are coming and wanting to uh uh and, and and wanting to see it and so yeah we had it we were able to get it on display when the centennial kicked off back in march and jim canary came and actually gave a little talk about what it was like taking it all over the country and various parts of Europe. It was supposed to go to Japan and then COVID came along and shut oh, wow. that down. Yeah. They're hoping they can take it again sometimes. But that, so that is what is referred to as uh, the scroll. It's the original manuscript of On the Road, which is now owned by the owner of the Indianapolis Colts, Mr. Ursay. And to his credit, he's allowed it to be displayed all over the place. And to give it, give it some kind of, you know, we were talking again, oh, when Kerouac died, his, 
his estate wasn't worth much of <laughs> much right. of anything at all. He's kind of when, like I said, when when Mr. Ursay bought the uh, scroll, like I said, he bought it for two point four million dollars. When we brought it to Lowell to have it displayed at the at the national park there, fortunately their their insurance was picking this up. It had to be reappraised for insurance purposes. Now the appraised value of the thing is five million dollars. Oh wow. Uh, so yeah. it's a five million dollar, it's a five million dollar document which really? Jack banged out on a typewriter in a New York City apartment back in April 1951. That's amazing. Very, yeah. very cool story. I love that. We'll see. This has been a lot of fun. I gotta yeah. thank my guest Steve Eddington for joining us. This is very, very cool. Now, if people want more information on the any kind of the events coming up for the hundredth birthday, where can we send them? We're Putting the final, excuse me, we're putting the final touches on our uh, schedule for October. Hopefully, sometime within the next week, it should be ready to go. Our website is just www.lowellcelebrateskarawak.org. Just straight lowellcelebrateskarawak.org. If you check that out in about another about another week, you should get the whole schedule for uh, for October. Also, some lodging information, places where you can stay when you when you come to Lowell as well. And we hope to see a we hope to see the tribe again. Come yeah, no, absolutely. Come October. And we'll make sure to link that. And one more, I wanted to make sure to mention: if people have interest in the foundation, trying to put trying to work with that church to make that museum a reality. Where can we go for that? That's, that's jackkerouac.org. Yeah. Jackkerouac.org. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. All right. It's been fun. I always enjoy doing this. <laughs> now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FCL Podcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.